Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1189, with guest Corey House. Recorded Thursday, August 27th, 2015. Hi. Hi. Here we are. Who's this? I'm just the guy. Oh, this is the other guy. I'm the host to be named later. I'm the other host to be <laughs> named later, but uh, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here for .NET Rocks. Corey House is in the house. React.js is going to be fun. And uh, well, what else can I say? We're getting into conference season here. You know, the, yep. the leaves are starting to turn up in the old Northeast, in the Pacific Northwest. Ah, uh, yeah. You're, you're pretty, pretty, pretty fall. It's going to be a good one this year. Yeah, probably early too. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, we've already booked the uh, – so friends of mine have a, a nice convertible, uh, Corvette convertible. So I've already booked it for the <laughs> foliage week, which my wife likes to pronounce foliage because her family's from Missouri. And nice. And they got a different name for everything. Uh, yeah, so we're looking forward to that. Enough about us. Let's get right into Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Foilage. Just saying. Foilage. Full edge. Full edge. Uh, okay, well, you know that C Sharp isn't the only language with new features, right? Right. VB14 or Visual Studio 2015 or Visual Basic 2015 or whatever they're calling it. I think they're calling it VB14. But uh, we've got some new features too on that side. And uh, I know there's a lot of posts about, you know, all the official things, but there was a really great blog post that just highlighted some little things that weren't so little. Tinyurl.com slash newvb2015. Uh, this is a great uh, article by Peter Vogel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Peter says, refactoring out of the box. C-sharp developers have always had more refactoring support, encapsulating fields, for example, than Visual Basic developers. And now VB14 developers get parity. Select some code, right-click, and select Quick Actions. A light bulb menu appears with all and only appropriate refactorings you can apply to the selected code. And the one he says the one that'll save you the most time, your VB code should compile in half the time. Wow. Half the time. Dude, I just don't think much about compilation time anymore. It's always on a machine that's not in front of me anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Pretty cool. All right. So I thought that was worth mentioning, especially yeah. that half the time compiling stuff. And uh, checking out at tinyurl.com slash newvb2015. Giving some love to the VB community. We love you guys. Yeah. And uh, that's what's going on here. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1180 just a few shows ago where we talked to Ms. Julie Lerman about Aurelia and all the work she's, you know, just sort of dove headfirst into, yep. let's try the new stack, which I just love. Yep, love it. And uh, Doug Corbett had this great comment. He says, thanks for the great conversation. We had a very similar experience coming up to speed with Node.js, Aurelia, and so on. It seems like a better solution than ASP.NET MVC once you know it. Mm -hmm. But wow. We are two months into it and nowhere near competent yet. 
Hmm. We had a six-month timeline to complete a medium-sized web application. With four months left, I made the decision to stick with ASP.NET MVC. We'll have to get our feet wet with a project that is lower risk and smaller in scope. I mistakenly thought that switching over to this tool set would be easy as incorporating jQuery. Boy, was I wrong. I really didn't know until I tried implementing a solution with it. Hmm. I sort of look at this and go, I don't know if this is a fair comparison because just adding jQuery... That's just tooling around sort of basic web behavior. You can keep using MVC. Like the, the model view controller pattern is an architectural pattern. It's a way to build software. And Aurelia and Co. just have a very different approach. Yep. And you've, you, you moved too much cheese at once when you went with that whole new stack to mm-hmm. really think about a production app. So uh, I'm with you, Doug. I understand uh, your decision making from a leadership perspective and good on you to call the ball rather than just to stick with it and be late and have all those other battles. But uh, I hope it doesn't put a bad taste in your mouth for the new stack. Like it clearly, I think it was, it was you guys <laughs> and it was the maturity of the stack too. It's like sooner or later, somebody like Julie, I expect to write a doc says, so you're an MVC dev. Here's how you do it with Aurelia. Yeah. But I don't think that doc exists yet. Yeah, yeah. So, Doug, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we'll send you a mug as well. And, of course, we tweet. Richard's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a tweet. That brings us to Corey House. Corey is an independent consultant specializing in front-end development and clean coding practices. He is a Microsoft MVP and author of multiple Pluralsight courses, including Building Applications with React and Flux, which was just published last week uh, as of this recording, which was uh, August 27th. Corey is founder of OutlierDeveloper.com, a career-oriented blog for developers who aspire to be exceptional. He speaks internationally at conferences like NDC, Fluent, and CodeMash. Corey blogs at bitnative.com and tweets about software development on Twitter at HouseCore. Welcome, Corey. Welcome back. Hi there, guys. Thanks for having me back. How was that conference in uh, Wisconsin Dells? Always a great time. I, I love the venue, love the people up there. Uh, got to hang out with Uncle Bob a little, which um, I, I've only my second time getting to do that, but um, always a little bit starstruck, but also just a lot of fun getting to uh, uh, chat with people. It was, it was a great time. Oh, great. He did an epic keynote. Oh, yes, he did. Yeah, you know, he tore it up. That was really, it was, it was a little bit of that history lesson, but he, he just interspersed it with such important pieces. That I, I surprised me just the, the, his whole viewpoint on the women in technology thing that, mm. you know, he was, he was in early enough that there was a 50 50 split between men and women in technology. And then he saw it change direction. I just love that story being told too. I mean, I think it's important to understand that history and um, see that, uh, there's still so much opportunity to make that happen again. Yeah. They, and, it, and it's an again. This is not it's always been this way. Mm. It's that something happened and it needs to be fixed. Yep. Absolutely. Totally agree. Well, you know, we do have some good role models out there and uh, they just need to be heard. For sure. That's all. Doing our best here. Uh, Corey, what are you up to these days? React JS. Is, is that working out for you? Uh, I am really enjoying it. It has uh, swallowed up the last six plus months of my life, though. This wow. was um, <laughs> this was a very uh, huge transition for me. Uh, I I've come from uh, Knockout and uh, Durandal, and then also shifted over to Angular. But then in the last uh, 
well, early this year was when I finally decided that I had heard enough cool things about React that I finally needed to step over there and, and dive in and see what all the buzz was about. And I've come to really enjoy what I'm seeing. I overheard somebody saying uh, a sort of uh, made-up tagline about React.js. React.js, because event handling in JavaScript royally sucks. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? Well, that is certainly one of the benefits. And I feel like that, uh, that statement, so backing up for anybody that's not familiar with React, um, it has a synthetic event system. So one of the things that React does for you um, in a number of different places is helping make things that are normally hard, easy. So I find the abstractions that are chosen within React uh, really help you fall into a pit of success. And the synthetic event system that they have is just one example of that, where yeah. you don't have to worry about um, the performance implications of how you're attaching events. It makes that happen for you. And composite events too, right? You could say when this and this and that and this state and that, then let me know. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. All right, so tell us uh, tell us what your experience has been. So my experience has been uh, at first, it's it's kind of funny how the learning curve happens with React, and I think this is probably one of the biggest uh, struggles going on right now that I see is um, people look at React and they're interested with it, but if you're comparing React to uh, something like Angular or Ember that is more um, a framework instead of a library, what you realize is. I have a ton of decisions ahead of me. And this was what I really struggled with as somebody learning React was going, uh, okay, well, I need a routing system. Now I've got to go research all these different routers and try to choose one. Yeah. Uh, I obviously need a way to make uh, HTTP calls um, to go hit my API. Which one should I use? Because I'm used to, if I'm someone that's come from Angular, I'm used to these decisions being made for me. Right. They're, they're supposed to be part of the framework. Yeah. yeah. And this is, I mean, it was really, I, I loved Julie's show last week. And this is something that, um, I feel like uh, anybody that's going into JavaScript is going to struggle with a lot of the new things that they deal with. But I will admit that the big downside with React is really the paradox of choice. Mm -hmm. um, and if you've ever read that book, I, I, I love that book. And Great really, the, book. Yep. the premise of the book really is that the more choices we have, the more likely we are to struggle and maybe try to push off the decision at all. And right. I find there's a large portion of developers that just like a single opinionated solution. And I would say for those type of developers, React right now probably isn't a good fit for you. Um, if you're somebody who wants to pull the best of breed technologies off the shelf, uh, then that's where React can really be a, a powerful choice. Yeah, and, well, the root of the paradox of choice is this idea that regret is a more powerful force. And so, f and more, more relevantly, fear of regret. So <laughs> right, rather absolutely. than have the chance that you might, and you know, what's the classic resistance to taking on a new framework? Oh, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get 80% down the path three months from now, and I can't get through the last 20%. Right. And I will regret my choice. So I won't choose. Especially the higher level and more problem solving, uh, you know, more powerful, it seems that it seems like your the hair on the back of your neck goes up. It's like, ah, uh, that might be too good to be true. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the, the really interesting conversations I've been having lately around the front end um, come around people that are looking for the decision that they can make that's really going to last for the next two or three years. And I'm, I'm starting to realize that I, I can't give anybody a good answer on that, that things are just moving so fast in that space that I think we have to accept that this new world is going to involve 
Um, so we have this concept of microservices that's getting a lot of attention, mm -hmm. but I think we also have to think about uh, how that that really ties in well with not just microservices, but micro front ends building. You might have a shop that has some Angular over here and some uh, React over here and some Knockout over here, and that's okay if you split up your application and you accept the fact that sometimes as people shift between teams, they'll have to get comfortable with a different technology. But if you want to play in this cutting edge game of JavaScript, you'll probably need to accept that you're not going to have a homogenous code base. Yes. Yep. That's the one thing that the more you think about it, the, the more angry you're going to get. Just, just give in. <laughs> just give up. Give, this is the way the world works. Get over it. <laughs> Well, it is hard because I, I know, it's very I know hard. No, no developer um, gets excited about working on legacy code. It's I, I want to feel like I'm working on the future rather than the past. Well, I shouldn't say no developer, but I find this is a really common trend. And even in our shop now, as we've started to shift toward React, I find the people that aren't working on React feel like they're getting left behind and they start getting anxiety about that. I'm going, the, the other tools that we're using are still relevant and still a great experience. We've just decided that it makes sense for new stuff to be using this because we've found some advantages for it. Mm. But that that's, I, I totally get it. As, as a software developer, you get anxiety about that. And I think that's one of the big struggles right now. And, and frankly, that's going to be the same problem that happens for, for people in other stacks too. With, if you're somebody in Angular right now, you're going to have to deal with uh, some of your team probably continuing to work in the uh, 1.x uh, branch as others move on to two. Mm. Yeah, well, that fragmentation of JavaScript frameworks, you know, be still my heart. How could such a thing happen? <laughs> Take us through a an, a an experience where um, using React JS just like solved a huge problem for you. And I know we've gone over what React can do and how awesome it is and stuff, but just remind us of the power. Okay, so I will say. This is, this is probably a surprising answer. Um, I was on the show uh, previously where I talked about uh, building single-page apps in Knockout. Mm -hmm. and I built a really large single-page application on a team of about three of us. And there was a single pain point that really stuck out to us again and again. And that was that what we found was our application was failing slowly. And what I mean by that was I would make a typo and I wouldn't find out immediately on what line I had made that mistake. So from my perspective, a really good solution is one solution that tells me, hey, on line 13, you forgot to close this tag. On right. line 13, I made a typo. And that is something that happens more often than in React than in Angular or in Knockout from my experience. And there's some fundamental reasons that that happens. And, and for me, the epiphany that I've found is uh, React is really the other side of the coin um, from something like Knockout and Angular. And what I mean by that is uh, Knockout, Angular, and Ember all have a very HTML-centric view of building an application. And so what they try to do is shim in that HTML to contain things like uh, conditionals, and data binding and these sorts of things. And the thing that React does fundamentally differently is saying, how about instead we shim in some markup in JavaScript? Hmm. And that, so instead of putting effectively JavaScript and HTML, which is what happens when you do ng repeat or you do data dash bind, whether you're working in Angular or Knockout uh, respectively, instead 
React has this idea of JSX, which JSX is really just an abstraction layer over plain old JavaScript. And you, it's totally optional. You could write plain old JavaScript to declare your markup. This is probably the piece of React that gets people most fired up. It's, it's a love-hate type of thing. And I find that most people hate the idea at first because of their natural inclination to separation of concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, <laughs> at, at that conference, I was having to explain this point while Uncle Bob was sitting across oh, the boy. table. And I thought, oh boy, I'm talking about intermingling concerns while he's listening. I, I, may, start <laughs> I may start wilting here. <laughs> My head may explode. Yeah, I was waiting for him to yell, get off my lawn, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I forged ahead. But, but the beauty of all this is, once you start composing your markup in JavaScript, you can finally get this rich error messaging that I can find out that on a certain line, I forgot to close a tag. I know that if I forgot to close this li tag, that it was on line 13, and my JSX just won't compile. So... That is a really luxurious experience compared to the alternative where I might type um, G dash repeat instead of NG repeat right. and nothing will happen. Nothing at all will happen because right. Angular is not looking for G dash repeat. That doesn't mean anything at all. Sure. So this fundamental decision up front, I, I believe, is something that other frameworks should start picking up. And I, I, don't, I don't know whether it will happen because right now this is such a, it continues to be something that divides people. There's as many people that love this idea in React as those that seem to to despise it. Because it's sort of against the mantra of the web, right? It's just like, just render. Render yes. a mess, but just render. And now we're actually saying, no, I'm actually going to tell you, you made a mistake here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I think the, the power here is that we, we've understood for a while in C Sharp, for instance, that leaning on the compiler is really handy. Yeah. That getting a compile time message is really useful. And I love being able to lean on the compiler as well when I'm writing my HTML. So TypeScript. Yes. TypeScript gives us that same kind of beauty. So we, we already live, um, and I've heard people say, hey, I, I don't want to have to compile something down to get my HTML, but we already live in a world where we need to minify, we right. need to bundle where we probably want to lint our JavaScript, where we may want to transpile from ES6 to ES5. And mm -hmm. in fact, I'd argue if you're not right now, uh, unless you have really strict browser requirements, you probably should be. So all of those things come together to say, it's, it's really a very minor amount of extra work to have this as part of your build step. I, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and you're, and you're right. The tool chain today from the code I type to the code running in your browser has a lot of stops. Mm -hmm. So the question is, Is I mean, I'm looking at the React code in the JS editor and saying, is this nicer? Is this a clearer way to talk about what your page should look like? Well, I think the fundamental question you have to ask yourself is, has the separation of concerns that we've had all this time between uh, effectively our views and our view models, yep. has that really truly been a separation? Because it's from my perspective, these two are absolutely glued together, even though they're in separate files. So uh, Pete Hunt describes this as a separation of technologies. And hmm. I tend to agree that we've, we've really gotten fixated on HTML and JavaScript being in separate files because they're separate technologies. And I think I understand why we did that, but there's a recognition that if I change a line of markup, I almost certainly need to go change some related code in my JavaScript. Anything that is expecting 
this particular data in JavaScript, if I change that binding in HTML, there's no strongly typed interface for me to keep these two in sync. So the question becomes, what's it really buying me having them in two separate physical files? What I end up doing is control tabbing in my IDE between these two and right. mentally gluing them together in my head. Yeah. I mean, are we really talking about whether or not you have multiple views to a given view model? Well, that's a so that's a bit of a separate conversation. I, okay. I, I guess in the in the world of React, it's all component based. So so the idea is I have components, I compose those components together, and I can create a really complex UI by just mm -hmm. nesting components. And it, it seems this idea of components is getting um, a lot of traction. We're seeing a lot more. Um, interesting components and really all the the JavaScript frameworks. We did out a there. whole show on it. I yep. think with you. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> yes, and it's you know it's unfortunate since we did that show. Uh, really, the web component standard has has stalled as the different browser vendors are still um, discussing exactly what they want to implement. <sighs> yeah. You know something's <laughs> important when the different groups disagree on it to the point of paralyzing it. <laughs> We're used to it though. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm just glad to see the conversations happening. I mean, I, I was at Fluent in uh, San Francisco back in April, and you've got to love San Francisco because here I was at a front-end developer-oriented conference, and across the hall, the Microsoft Edge team was there talking web components at a separate conference that was literally wow. in the same hotel. Hmm. And so I got to visit with them some, and I, I, I just love hearing that the conversations are happening and things are moving forward. It, it's clear that the the standard that we have today that was implemented in Chrome and Opera isn't going to stay as is. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see how, how Chrome even responds to that because they didn't put things behind uh, compatibility flags or I should say browser-specific flags. They're just out there in the public. So they'll, they'll definitely have to make some uh, interesting shifts as the, the spec changes. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's part of the challenge here is now you, you have to keep moving forward. And it's clear that the React approach is componentizing mm -hmm. uh, different UI elements, which I presume is all about reuse then, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Although I think it's the story of reuse is helpful and interesting, but I don't think it's the most compelling story. I think the thing about components that's awesome to me is that I have a single autonomous file that I can reason about in isolation. And it has this really clear API where I know these properties are passed into this component. And I know that it's deterministic, that when I set these properties to these values, I'm going to get this particular markup rendered. And I can write tests around that really easily because it's given these inputs, it's I get these outputs. It's very, very natural for anybody that's used to um, pure functions and is familiar with functional programming. I'm just wondering about building up a sufficient set of these that you you have now, I guess, a UI look, right? That the, that this styling or approach to this leads to some advantages once you've matured a set. It's going to be easier and easier to add new pages to your site with less and less work, and it'll still follow all the same patterns. Absolutely. And in fact, in my when I was building the Pluralsight course, one thing that I came across was, hey, I have... Uh, all these inputs on these forms. And if anybody's ever done bootstrap, one thing that you know is bootstrap tends to throw up divs all over the place. You, yeah. you end up having to, to use a lot more divs and classes than you probably wanted to. But by creating a reusable component that abstracted away just text inputs, I'm able to just put in an angle bracket, uh, my text input, close angle bracket, and I get the markup behind the scenes that 
ends up displaying a nice uh, styled bootstrap input. Nice. So those sorts of things allow me to reduce the boilerplate in my code and centralize it. But I really feel like the, the core idea, though, is having components that I can reason about in isolation. And that's something that React just does really nicely. It feels like you're taking sort of vertical, you're componentizing in the vertical versus componentizing in the horizontal. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's precisely why HTML and JavaScript belong together in this model. Because right. They're, they're both part of the same component, so why would I want them in two separate files? Yeah. Now, the view, the, the view, view model approach is very much a horizontal partitioning of functionality. Mm -hmm. And this is a vertical partitioning where all of the functionality around this given piece of UI is together. I mean, you, and you've only talked about HTML and JavaScript. Should we talk about CSS in there as well, or is that just a class call? Well, so uh, CSS is where things get even more uh, particularly interesting because hmm. you, you can play the old game. You can do traditional CSS and React, and in fact, a lot of people do. But you also have the option of not using traditional CSS and doing your CSS in JavaScript too. Yeah. So effectively, JavaScript swallows the world here. Uh, and depending <laughs> depending on the team that you want to root for, this sounds either awesome or the apocalypse. And I can totally see both viewpoints. Yes, I, I, and I have chills while thinking about its awesomeness. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my! Yeah. So if, if you go to certain blogs that are very CSS oriented, they describe this as the end of the world, and it sounds awful. And and I totally get it. If you're somebody that uh, is really awesome at CSS, you start to see a lot of things that could potentially go wrong here. Oh, no. I think this is a basic measure of the quality of this tool. It's a really big gun, and your foot has no hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so this is the thing. There are some really valid concerns with CSS. If you yes. think about CSS, effectively what I'm doing is declaring a bunch of global variables. And the way that I try to get around that is by writing really specific selectors. Yeah, they're really specific <laughs> global variables. Yes. And, that, <laughs> and that's where it gets really tricky, right? Because the more specific that those global variables are, the more brittle they become. So talk about a, a give and take. And when you think about instead, what if I defined my styles using JavaScript, then all of a sudden I get all the power of JavaScript. And this is an interesting idea. Now, one thing I want to clarify is this is nothing that you have to do in React because I recognize that this is very controversial, but it is something that seems to be taking hold in the React community because there's a recognition that of the three technologies, JavaScript, HTML, and CSS, JavaScript is powerful enough to shim in the other two in really interesting ways. Mm. Yeah. And, and once you accept that, then you can start to use the tooling that comes out of the box with JavaScript. And you even get things like, oh, I wanted to define uh, an inline style here, which, again, we established years ago that inline styles are generally to be avoided. But yep. at the component level, an inline style starts to make a lot of sense again. Yeah, sure does. Now I can reason about that component, and I know if I change the color of this style right here, I know with for a fact that I'm not going to impact the rest of the application. If I go over to a traditional CSS file and change a line in a CSS file, 
for me, that is often a very scary thing because I don't have any test coverage that makes sure that I haven't somehow visually broken some part of a larger application. Although that was that was the whole point with style with the CSS approach was I modify one of those global styles and I get a global modification. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's done component development knows all about that. You want to just contain it to a certain area. I mean, that, that's what I love about CSS. I mean, and I, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> is you, you're, you're open to make those decisions. You can really screw yourself up by, by nesting things so deep. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, having separate components all across boards, like, okay, we're, we're making a fundamental color change here. How am I going to propagate this across all of these UI components? That's the downside. Yep. Yeah. So would you guys agree that there's some kind of middle ground that makes a lot of sense here? I think you no have No middle ground. You're either for us <laughs> or against us. What kind of an American are you? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I just said a Canadianism right there. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, I forgot. You guys have a podcast and controversy gets ears. <laughs> I'm perfectly willing to let a guest come and ruin their career on our show. That's no problem. Absolutely. <laughs> Knock yourself out. <laughs> Let me backpedal as fast as I can right now. <laughs> Run away. <laughs> so so my take on this is that CSS continues to be useful for those global things, but there are places where using JavaScript can be really useful. Mm-hmm. And when I say using JavaScript, you don't have to use JavaScript, but I should say there are places in the component model where using an inline style is just fine. Mm. And in fact, just for one example... If imagine I had a table with a hundred rows in it and I put an inline style on that table row, that's fundamentally inefficient because that means that inline style was sent down from the server a hundred right. times. Yeah. But in the world of React, I would define that inline style once in my JSX and it would be iterated by JavaScript and then spit out into the HTML. So there's really no negative impact to that style from a performance standpoint. Mm. So you have to rethink some of the old best practices when you're in this new world. Almost feels like you want to separate some of the styling components. There's clearly styles that are specific to the component, and then there's styles that are generalized to the site. Could you make that split? Oh, absolutely. And I think I think those are some of the the hard decisions as we start to think more about components, because you're right, we're, we're never going to get away from the idea of some global decisions that we make, yeah. but... When we're making component level decisions, at least in React, using inline styles again makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I totally agree. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to become fluent in React while HTML is in flux. Got to pull, oh, pull myself up by the bootstraps and start coding with style. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Help, help. I've been buzzworded to death. Help, help. <laughs> It's kind of like the feeling of coding in JavaScript, for example. <laughs> uh, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Kirk Sandman from Albion, Nebraska. Congratulations, Kirk. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. And Kirk just won Telerik DevCraft Bundle. That's a huge pile of awesome from Telerik. 
If you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And Corey, we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology... Not bourbon. <laughs> what would you buy? Five gram worth of bourbon. Holy dude. <laughs> well, hold on. I got to choose something else then. Just a second. <laughs> okay. So I love this question. Uh, last time I was on, uh, I was throwing out the idea of three really large monitors. The 4Ks. Yeah. I think somebody yes. poo-pooed you on that too. Yeah. And now I have this new thing on my wish list that I doesn't, I don't think exists yet. So I will admit to you guys now, the whole reason I wanted to be on the show was so I could announce this and hope that somebody builds it for me. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Whatever motivates you. So I, I switched over to a Mac uh, about the beginning of the year and I love yeah. the retina display on it. And really DPI scaling works really nicely on the Mac too. Plugging into external monitors works really well. Except for some Windows apps. Just saying. <laughs> well, so, so in at least in parallels, DPI uh, scaling is working really well for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Boot camp, not so much. Oh, yeah. I haven't tried boot camp. Yeah. Um, but, but so here's the thing I'm looking for. I would like an external retina display. And when I say retina display, I really just mean an external high DPI display that is small. Mm. Basically, if I could get the 13-inch screen that's on my MacBook Pro as an external, something that's small and I could just slide into my laptop bag, mm. I could plug it into Thunderbolt. And when I'm traveling, when I'm sitting at a hotel, when I'm at a conference, I could still have two monitors. And in fact, I'm starting to think that I'd be pretty happy even using it at home um, mounted to nice uh, Ergotron arms. Because you, I think, Carl, you made the point that you're not a big fan of really wide monitors because you end up turning your head a lot. And I was finding that to be true as well when I got the really wide one next to a couple other ones. And I feel like I'm playing tennis as I write code sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about maybe high DPI small screens are going to be the new thing I try if mm. I can find somebody selling them. Interesting. The manufacturer you need to watch is Samsung. Because Samsung announced a couple of years ago a 10-inch 2560 by 1600, 300 DPI screen. Wow. For tablets, right? It was to be manufactured in tablets. But that with a minimum bezel, that's a hell of a monitor. Indeed. Well, I've seen a few people that are using iPads as external monitors. Yeah. Which makes a fair amount of sense. I, I would like something a little bigger than 10, like 13 inch, I feel like is a really good size for a monitor. And Having something that's the same size as your laptop screen, if you're yeah. going to use your laptop screen, uh, then that makes a lot of sense. This is sort of the modern way now. I've seen a bunch of people doing this, where you just want a small a small additional screen, same size as your laptop screen, that you keep in your bag like it's a tablet. You pull it out, plug it in, you know, second screen. I've just been carrying another Ultrabook because they're so light. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not that far away from getting a third. Hmm. Because they're, they're three pounds each, right? At nine pounds, it'd still be lighter than that P4 laptop I used to carry oh, around. Oh, God. That was, thing was huge. Yeah. I only knocked out the power in LA once. Yeah. Okay. But Richard, how does that help you if you're, for instance, I might want to be coding on one monitor and seeing my results in the browser on the other. How would two machines help you out? Do you find you use them simultaneously? You just network them together and you've got it calling into your, your, uh, your web page. Oh, 
what what is the name of that tool that lets you use one keyboard on two machines? Is that um, syn- um, Synergy. Synergy, right. Synergy, there we go. And the mouse, yeah. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and it's it's some. I'm very used to multiple computers. My main workspace is you know four machines. That's the way it's always been. Plus, not even counting the servers. I'm talking about the different desktop machines in immediate reach. Uh, wow. Because I like isolation for the work and isolation and configuration. And now I'm I'm headed down that path with la- with these with ultrabooks with two pound ultrabooks and a small networking setup. I can just sit with three little computers around me, control them from one good keyboard, and be able to hop back and forth across the screens. But I'm with you. If if somebody gets really good at just building monitors, I would carry one beefier machine, drive three monitors. There you go. Mm-hmm. Hey, Corey, how far away are we from having a vibrant third-party uh, JavaScript component or maybe even particularly react component uh ecosystem i was doing a lot of thinking about this yesterday because uh, a conversation came up at work about now that we're starting to ship to react hey shouldn't we start building a bunch of reusable components that different teams can use and at, at the moment i feel like it's um i feel like it's a bit of a fool's errand because things are moving so quickly that, that the target moves before you really got to get much value out of re- whatever reusable components that you've created. Uh, I mean, I think right now about who's the, the big gorilla in uh, JavaScript. Well, I mean, Angular probably has the most eyeballs and the most mindshare. Mm. But if I've created all these uh, reusable directives right now, they're not going to shift straight over into two. So even that, which seemed like the safest bet, isn't really a long-term bet. So I continue to, to feel like the, the reusable part of the story of components isn't as interesting as the decomposition story. Does that make sense? Well, explain. So the reason that the component-based idea is really powerful to me is that now I can reason about really small parts of my application in isolation. Yeah. Where before in the world of MVC, I tended to have to reason about a page at a time and reason about how this controller, view model, and view were interacting to be able to display this page. Now, you didn't necessarily always have to do that, but the MVC pattern tended to encourage you to build uh, a little more monolithic pages. Mm. And now we have this new world where <laughs> if, if you're not careful, you can overdo this as well. But now that you can break things down into components, you can start to think about really small parts of your application at once. And I feel like that is really useful even if this new component that I built is only used once. Because I, I don't care that it's only used once. What I care about is anytime somebody goes in to maintain and edit it later, they can easily understand it because they're just looking at this small autonomous piece that takes some discrete inputs and gives you a deterministic output. Right. Well, are we talking about web components like with a capital WC, you know, the the technology that's sort of up and coming there where there's this, this community webcomponents.org and, 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 you know, this is sort of going to be a new thing. Are we, are we just talking about components as an idea? 
So right now I'm talking about components regardless of technology. I mean, web okay. components, capital W, capital C, is, as you refer to it there, is right. one way to build components. And that way is obviously still in a bit of flux and hopefully we'll, we'll settle down. I'm guessing early next year we should finally start to see some traction in that space. But I still feel like regardless of technology, um, the most interesting piece of the, the component story is reasoning about your application in small, uh, sort of the Russian doll model where you have uh, small pieces of UI that are nested in other smaller pieces of UI. Yeah. And in fact, the probably the most uh, easy mistake that you can make when you're working with React is making your pieces too small or, or nesting too deeply. Mm -hmm. uh, once you're nesting components five, six, seven layers deep, it starts to get harder to reason about and, and work with your application again because there's there's so many pieces involved. Isn't that funny? I mean, we were talking about web components with us in February mm -hmm. and, and it still hasn't really gelled yet. I mean, I'm talking about the sort of the formal spec. Yeah, and I tell you, I, I'm frustrated because I know back in February when we talked about the formal spec, I was really excited about it. We were it, all excited. And, yeah. and I felt like we were just on the cusp of things really progressing. But the thing that I didn't realize, and I, I feel silly for not knowing this before, was I should have understood more of the backstory. And the backstory was that Google made those decisions pretty much in isolation and said, well, I'm going to put all these features out here into Chrome and then hope that everybody else shows up to the party. And long story short, other people chose not to show up. They saw what was done and they saw, to their credit, some obvious concerns with um, the current standard as it stands. So mm. the good news is the conversations are happening. And I think um, early next year, we'll, we'll probably start to see these things change. I don't think that Google did anything wrong. I think that's the normal model. It's like you get an idea, you've got to build it enough to show that it's realistic. You maybe engage a few people to have those conversations and then you sort of present it and hope that people buy in. Like, tell me a better model because just talking it to death, I don't know if that's any better. Well, so a lot of people feel like the fundamental uh, thing they should have done differently was at least putting it behind a flag so that it was clear that it was something that was experimental, but by just putting it out in the open. Well, and, and they know better than that. They did this with WebSockets too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you know better, like that's a given, but yeah, uh, yeah I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you there. It's just like, you got to protect people for, you got to protect your devs and you've, but you know, you, you, it makes sense to build it, people experiment with it and then it can be shown. Mm-hmm. Um, so should we talk a little bit about Flux? Because, uh, you know, and, and implementations of Flux? Yeah, sure. So Flux is a tricky idea to get your head around at first, especially if you're someone who's been living in the world of two-way binding, because it's a fundamentally different way of thinking about data flows in your application. So if you're somebody that's worked in two-way binding, Knockout, Angular, Ember, I'll do this pattern, you're used to when the UI changes, the data changes. And when the data changes, the UI changes. So your view model and your view are keeping each other updated. Same model that we had in Silverlight, for instance. But with Flux, we have what's called unidirectional data flows. And that sounds really complicated, but the big idea is this, that when your UI changes, that UI changed for a reason. And in Flux, you have this idea of an action, and an action is really just a name for that thing that happened. So for instance, if I click the delete user button, 
that's an action. So the action in that case would be delete user. And in Flux, what you have is this list of actions that can happen in your application. And I really love this about Flux because if you, uh, if Carl or Richard, if you went out and wrote an application using Flux, I could go over and I could look at your actions and I can see this list of all the discrete things that can happen in your application. Oh, okay, I can see I can buy stocks, I can sell stocks, hmm. I can trade, I can send an email to a customer. So all of the actions sit in one place. And then those actions are dispatched out to all of your stores. Now, stores is uh, a bit analogous to a view model, but the difference is in Flux, you can have one store or many stores. And the idea is, when an action happens, that action is dispatched out to any stores that care about that action happening. So if I was writing, for instance, an application that trades stocks, I might have a store that keeps track of my stocks. I might have a separate store that keeps track of my users and those sorts of things. And then when an action occurs, any store that cares about a stock that was just purchased would find that message and then update itself accordingly. So there's a, there's a give and a take here. What I found is the Flux model requires more typing. There is more, um, depending on the Flux implementation that you choose, there is typically more typing than you would have in a traditional two-way binding model. But there's a clear benefit, and that benefit is I can see exactly all the actions that can happen in an application, and I can trace what happens when that action occurs. And the beauty of Flux is, if an action occurs that needs to update two or three different stores, that's really easy to understand because I can just see, oh, this store subscribed and wanted to know when a user's deleted, and mm. this store wanted to know when a user's deleted. If you think about the way that plays out in a traditional MVC model, what you can often find happening is when this view model updates, I want to update this other view model, and this other view model, when it updates, it's going to update this view, and you can end up with a bit of a ping pong effect yeah. when different view models need to know about something happening. And in the past, I've solved that with a traditional pub-sub type of setup, and that does work, but I've found that the Flux model is a more elegant way to think about your data flows. And I guess, you know, you, you talk about the paradox of choice. There's even more choices in the <laughs> Flux world, right? Uh, yeah, there's there's a silly number out there, but I, I will tell you, if, if there's to, from my standpoint right now, there's three that are worth considering. Uh, the first is Facebook's Flux. Um, the second is Alt, which has gotten a lot of attention, is well-documented, uh, really well-liked. ALT. And then, ALT. And then the third is Redux, uh, which is my favorite of the bunch right now. And the, here's the awesome selling point about Redux. If you use Redux, you can hot reload your stores and your actions. So that's, that's a little bit of jargon. Let me explain that. I can go in and change the way my actions work and change the way my stores work. And that will instantly apply within the browser without me having to refresh the browser. Ah, oh, nice. So that's really nice if you find yourself, for instance, oh, okay, I'm building a five-step process. And on step four, I'm wanting to change some code. And you've probably had this before where you're wanting to change something and you go in, you change the code, and now I have to go fill out step one, yeah. step two, step three, step four. And it takes all this time to get back your client side state that mm -hmm. you needed. So now you don't lose your state anymore. It just hot reloads and patches in whatever changes you've made as you go along, which I find really speeds development. So flummox or flexible don't do that? Uh, I am not 
familiar with Flummox or Flexible. They're on my list of others to potentially look at. If I remember right, Flummox, there's a few on this list that have basically seen what Redux did and said, you know what? I like that enough. I'm not going to do another release. You know, that's fluxing crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You couldn't pass that one up. I couldn't. (laughs) Never does. What the flux? There's a good blog post by that title. I, I oh, recommend really? reading it. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Corey, what does your React stack look like? Good question. So, this was uh, a lot of months of me looking at different ways to get things done and finally deciding what I felt comfortable with. I think anytime that you choose a stack, there's an element of of popularity to it, that I want to pick something that I feel like has a lot of eyeballs, so it's more likely to last for a while. Mm -hmm. I want to choose something that's well-documented, that I find easy to pick up, and I think others will as well. So uh, for the router choice, uh, I'm using React Router, which is the most popular router out there. Uh, React Router is modeled really closely off of Ember's router. So if you happen to use Ember, it's really easy to pick up. Hmm. It's it's declarative. You can nest your routes. I found it uh, very easy to learn, even though I was someone who had never uh, touched Ember before, uh, at least not with it, any production code. And uh, I've been really happy with it. There's a 1.0 release coming very soon that uh, makes some interesting changes. And another nice thing that you can do with React Router is uh, isomorphically uh, handle your routing. I love and that. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. confused, but enthusiastic. <laughs> sounds great. What is it? What? Well, allow me to collect myself as I answer that. <laughs> okay, so I, I just used the I word, which uh, usually infuriates a few people. So I could also say universal JavaScript is another way to put this. But That'll piss people off too. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, probably so. I, I'm looking for a term that everyone will embrace. But the idea is this, that we're starting to write all this JavaScript. Wouldn't it be nice if we rendered on the server first? And that's what you can do with React. And it's one of the, the really nice selling points is I can just say react.render to string and it will spit out the HTML. So I can do that on the server using something like Node or as a .NET developer, you could use a project uh, reactjs.net that abstracts all this away for you, uses Google's V8 engine. And it is super easy to get uh, set up. I was really impressed with how reactjs.net worked. Uh, but regardless, whether you use Node or, or reactjs.net, there's uh, this benefit of rendering on the server first because now all of a sudden I don't have to worry about SEO uh, because it's going to send down exactly the markup right. that you're going to see on the browser. Is this something you could do programmatically? It's like if you see a robot's coming, do do server-side render. If you see a down-level browser coming, you might want to do a server-side render. Hmm. That's an interesting idea. I... Uh, I don't know that I would necessarily want to do that because there's other nice benefits of uh, isomorphic rendering. For instance, you get progressive enhancement for free because if I do this right, since I'm just sending down plain old HTML, somebody could have JavaScript disabled and they could still navigate my site. They would just post back from page to page instead of my client side routing, uh, attaching and sending them directly there without a post back. Right. I, I, and I'm just the guy who's run a lot of servers who hates to do more compute on the server than I can possibly stand, right? Like, if I can, <laughs> I if I can recruit the other guy's machine, I will. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, so so we were talking about the stack. Uh, React Router is what I use there. Uh, I'm still uh, torn between 
plain old Flux, which uh, is Facebook's version, and Redux. But the more that I'm using Redux, the more I, I really like it. Uh, I'll probably shift over there. Frankly, uh, the hardest thing about Redux is if you're not someone who's up on all the jargon that comes with functional programming, it can feel uh, a little bit daunting. But I've been learning more functional programming alongside this. Uh, it, I, I don't know if anybody's seen, uh, I think it's Mr. Frisbee's Adequately Adequate Guide to Functional Programming. Oh boy. I love it. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but it's a really good online book uh, that I've been reading through and I'm, I'm finding it a, a great way to learn uh, the functional side of things. Sounds great. Dr. Boolean's Mostly oh, yes. Adequate Guide to Functional Programming. Thank you. Ah, oh, you know what? Somebody just recommended that as a better know framework. So maybe we'll mm -hmm. do that next time. Oh, no, that was Professor Frisbee's Mostly Adequate Guide to Functional Programming. Thank you. I was hoping there was a Frisbee in there somewhere. Either that or I'm just <laughs> You weren't completely crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking for it. But. Did you find it, Richard? Because it's at github.com slash Dr. Boolean. Dr. Boolean. Okay, that's the first link I saw, and I thought Dr. Boolean, not Professor Frisbee. But. So, Corey, how was the MVP Summit this year? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm confused. <laughs> not as confused as our listeners. Because <laughs> it's September 9th. Uh, I'm just kidding. We're going to have a good time there. I know we will. I can't wait. Yeah. Always a good time. There's time shifting, and then there's what you're doing. I know. It's just mean. I'm sorry. But uh, we will have to find a couple of good places to have a few cocktails. I'm sure we will. Are you all booked? Uh, no, I'm really regretting it, because now I'm probably not going to get the hotel I wanted. But nonetheless... Oh, no, it sounds like there was a very big shortage of hotel rooms. So. If I didn't have to do that stupid show, I would have gotten my hotel... <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be sure to... I'm planning to humble brag that on Twitter later. <laughs> nice. I would have booked my MVP Summit registration, but I was on .NET Rocks. Right. Bingo. That's a good one. I like yeah. that one. <laughs> All right, Corey. Well, we'll see you there. I'm looking forward to it. And thanks a lot for hanging out with us. It's been great. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a lot of fun. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a